Good morning. Uh, I think, uh, was it Holly? Did you light the candles? So uh, you saw me trying to light them. Uh, by God's grace. Yeah, there's, there's few things more frustrating than knowing you're about to go preach and like trying to process that and like trying to do like a fine motor skill that's not working. And I just wanted to throw the lighter. And then I had to come up earlier for confession and have my own confession. And then, uh, because I just couldn't get it figured out. I was like, oh yeah, I can do this. This is no big deal. Hope I preach better than I light. Rest kids, you guys are dismissed from this train wreck. <clears throat> as soon as they clear the aisles, ushers, you guys can receive the morning's tithes and offerings. We're in week three of our Advent sermon series. This Advent is focusing on this idea of our situation and the space between, right? The space between God's first coming in the incarnation and the space between God's second coming uh, in the second coming when Christ breaks open the eastern skies and returns. Uh, our last couple of sermons are, are up on uh, SoundCloud, or our website, iTunes, or, or Apple Podcasts, or whatever. So uh, please go listen to those. Uh, the first one is sort of like the title track that lays out uh, the vision of what we mean when we talk about this, this space between language, how we understand our lives as parts of a story God is unfolding from creation, the beginning of all things, to the consummation, the fulfillment of all things. and It just gives us some helpful sort of time boundaries as we think about our lives. Then last week we talked about faith, right? How do we live in that space between? How do we live as people through whom God is unfolding his renewal plan for all of creation? Well, first and foremost, we live by faith. We read in Hebrews 11, that sort of hall of fame, hall of faith, if you will, chapter where God is saying, it's all of these people pleased me by their faith. We act in faith when we believe what God says and act on what God says. Faith reckons as ultimately true that which God says is ultimately true. We define faith simply as taking God at his word. The people who pleased God throughout history are those who took him at his word, believing what he says to be true and living in active response. Our faith is grounded in the reality of the Christ event, all he is and all he is done. Consequently, faith, as opposed to what many in the culture may want to say and many in our churches may want to say, faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not the filler in difficult Bible passages. Well, how did this, how did it work this? Oh, just have faith, don't think about it, right? Biblical faith is a steadfast assurance that the God who has been faithful for untold generations will remain faithful for untold generations. Faith is not grounded in an internal assurance, though it includes an internal assurance. Faith is grounded in reality, in an external reality, a reality that is outside of us, namely that God has come to the world in Christ, and that coming and all that comes with it is ultimately true. This morning, as we continue our survey of how to live in this space between the Advent and the Second Coming, we consider the related ideas of hope and joy. Next week, we'll end our series with the queen of all virtues, love. 
Now, my weekly disclaimer I gave last week and I'll give next week, I'm not saying all there is to say about hope and joy. I'm not even saying all that the Bible has to say about hope and joy. Far from it, in fact. This morning, I'm interested in a real hope that leads to real joy when we're going through real stuff. Real hope that leads to real joy when we're going through real stuff. As I alluded to during our time of confession, in this place we live, in this situation and time and space in which we find ourselves, God's people will experience the best and worst of life. Because we live in a created world, that means God made it, that means it is good, but we also live in a fallen world, a world riddled by sin, a world radically corrupted by disobedience. So how do we live in this world where good things happen, where bad things happen, where God's people, like everyone else, experiences the best and worst of life, where the rain falls on the just and the unjust? Advent is our annual reminder that God shows up in the muck and mire of disappointments and unmet expectations. Advent is our annual reminder that God shows up in the muck and mire of disappointments and unmet expectations. So the question we're really asking in one sense is, How do we live with an active awareness that we're part of God's unfolding story when life is really hard? When I'm not particularly pleased with the situation I find myself in, whether it's relationally, economically, socially, what have you. We can begin towards an answer to this question by saying, we live in this world with otherworldly joy tethered to otherworldly hope. We live in this world with otherworldly joy tethered to otherworldly hope. Let's continue feeling out our role in God's story by learning to live his characters marked by a sure and steady hope that leads to a sure and steady joy. The title of this sermon is Hope and Joy in the Space Between. Now, as we jump into 1 Peter 1, uh, I preached this text in the last calendar year, but as I was preparing for Advent, I had sort of a bunch of texts that dealt with this sort of tension of, of already accomplished salvation and not yet accomplished salvation, right? That we have been saved already, but yet there's this sense in which we're still awaiting this final salvation. And how do we live in that space between? And this was one of the sort of primary texts that I, that I was using to think and through. And I thought, well, many folks don't really remember what I preached eight, nine months ago. So uh, let's use that anyways as a guide through where we're going. So if this text sounds familiar, that's good, and I generally don't preach the same text in the same calendar year, but this text is particularly, particularly applicable for where we are this morning. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from 
the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. These are verses 3 through 5. Let's begin with verse 3. The text begins with an acclamation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This sounds like a, a call to worship, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. According to God's great mercy, right, His great love, His great compassion, He has caused the following. He has caused us to be born again, right, to experience a new birth in Christ, born once in Adam, right, born again in the second Adam. We've been born to things and through things, right? We've been born to a living hope, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So through the resurrection, we are born again to a living hope that what is out there is real, that Christ is alive and in heaven, and he himself is our living hope. So through his resurrection, we are born to and oriented towards hope. Verse 4 begins, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Into verse 4, which is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're now people marked by a living hope that, that Christ's resurrection has ensured our resurrection. And this is our firm hope. We've been born again to an inheritance, not an inheritance that, that you know, folks in your family can spend or that can rot away or that can become worthless or uh, that will be outdated at some point, right? But an inheritance that is in heaven, it is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is perfect, it is pure. We're going then to this place to receive this thing that God has for us. The text says that this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading is being kept for us in heaven. But not only is God keeping that inheritance, God is keeping us. Kept in heaven for you, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. There's a picture of us walking through life being guarded by the power of God as we journey to this destination that God has prepared for us. God is at the end and God is making sure we get to the end end. He's guarding our inheritance, and he's guarding us. He is making sure that what he has started will be finished. 
He is making sure that those of us who have tasted and seen His goodness will taste and see His goodness forevermore. And if He must, He will drag us across the finish line. Last week, I shared an, an illustration from uh, my trek up to the Tiger's Nest Monastery, which is sort of a, a famous Think Batman Begins kind of monastery carved out the side of a, a mountain in, in Bhutan. And uh, the last illustration was very self-deprecating. You know, I'm not in great shape, but I'm in a shape, <laughs> you know. And, uh, I talked about how it was hard, and I used an illustration there. But this week I was thinking of a story our guide was telling us as we were coming back down the mountain. Um, an 80-year-old lady made that trek. It took all day for, for us to do. He said it only took her 10 hours. And at different moments it took picking her up and carrying her through some parts that she couldn't do. Herself. And when I thought about this idea that God by faith is guarding us, I had this sort of image of <laughs> our guide picking up this 80-year-old lady when it gets to a difficult part of the path and just carrying her through that part of the path. And then I thought about sort of the, the, the scene he described to us when they finally got to the top where you could see all the, you know, the view and, and see the, all, all that's there. And she just starts crying and weeping because this was this huge accomplishment for her that she made this trek. But she didn't make that trek alone, but she's been presented and she's experiencing the joy and reality that came with making that trek. And in one sense, I think that's kind of what God is doing for us, right? He has something way better than a silly monastery on the side of a mountain, right? He has a kingdom that is perfect. He has life with Him. He has life as it should be that we will experience and we will have and we will live forever in a resurrected and perfect body, experiencing the sort of life that God intended for us in Genesis 1 and 2. But God is the one who's getting us there. He's picking us up. He's dragging us there. He is guarding us through faith so that the, the, the inheritance is secured and we are secured. Because of what Jesus did for us, we will receive an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading hope. Not because of our merits, but because of His merits. Not because we are strong, but because He is strong. Not because we are faithful, but because He is faithful. Not because we are just good and motivated, but because of our faith which guides us. This is the hope of the gospel that we will be with God and that we will be rewarded by God and that all of this is guaranteed God's people by the shed blood and triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is our sure and steady hope. We have an inheritance that is fixed, it is secure, it is firm, and it ain't going anywhere. And we by God's power, not our power, by faith, not by works, are going to receive that inheritance. We transition to verse 6. Verse 6 begins, my iPad messed up. All the little things today, man, I, I need to go home and just go to bed. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, 
though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In this, piggybacking off of the hope we just considered, in this hope you rejoice. Let's get the this right. In this you rejoice. In what? Do you rejoice? I think a lot of the problems we don't rejoice is because we have the this wrong, right? In this hope, Paul or, or Peter's talking about in this text. In this, the things that we've just talked about, you rejoice. Not in this status, you rejoice. In this health, you rejoice. In this job, you rejoice. In this relationship, you rejoice. In this income, you rejoice. In this house, you rejoice. In this car, you rejoice. But in this hope, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There are three phrases that I want us to sort of underline, highlight, or, or take notes on here. Uh, for a little while, if necessary, and various. For a little while, if necessary, and various. And I think these three little phrases won't help us get to the bottom of the problem of evil and pain and suffering, but it'll give us the sort of basic Christian foundations to work through difficulty in our lives. In Christ, in the salvation you have received and you will receive, you rejoice, even though for a little while, for a little while, there will be trials. This helps us know that no matter how forever our trials may seem, they are not, in fact, forever. Some of them last a day, some of them last an hour, some of them last 20 years, some of them last a lifetime. And I don't diminish the reality of those different trials. But when compared to eternity, when compared to what is coming, it is but a little while. So no matter what trial you're in the midst of this morning, I can't guarantee that it'll all be better. I can't guarantee that it'll ever be better. But I can guarantee that in one real sense, it is only for a little while. Even though for a little while, if necessary, if necessary, I want to tread very, very carefully here, but I think there's much to unpack. The reason I want to tread carefully is because it's extraordinarily dangerous to try to assign God's motives to God's actions. Something bad happens to this person that you think had it coming for him, right? and all of a sudden you are the expert on the heart of God? Well, that person had it coming for him. God's trying to teach them X, so he did Y. I, maybe I would not want to be that sort of mouthpiece for the heart of God. 
It's inappropriate to make statements like, oh, this city is wicked, that's why this natural disaster clearly happened, and, and we know that's why it happened, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we know from the whole of the Bible that God allows and in some secondary sense ordains various trials in our lives. And he does this for his ultimate purpose. We see statements like, this the enemy intended for evil, but I intend it for good. And this language of necessary implies that there are trials, they come into our lives that are necessary for our spiritual growth and maturity, even though we don't always see that on the front end. I look at my life and my sort of brief in the grand scheme of things ministry, and without fail, seasons of marked growth rise from seasons of massive disappointment. Seasons of marked growth rise from seasons of massive disappointment. Our suffering, our trials are for a little while, and in some sense, they're necessary. In some sense, those trials are doing things in our hearts that wouldn't have happened any other way. Even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I, I zone in on this word various because every trial is different, right? You know, you see all these pithy little quotes on social media, and I used to be a lot more uh, brash and a lot more, you know, until I suffered a lot. See how it kind of works together? Now I'm much gentler. Uh, and I would see these little sayings that people post and be like, oh, that's not biblical. You know, that's heresy. That's, that's ridiculous, you know. And sometimes if it is heresy, it's, you know, it shouldn't be just enjoyed by God's people. But one of the little quotes that you always see is, you know, be kind to people because everyone's fighting a battle that you know nothing of, right? And I see that shared all the time. And I, I, that little quote kind of popped in my mind as I was reading this text, you know, this idea of there are various trials. There are all sorts of trials. For some people, trials are, are cancer, for some people, it's uh, another illness that you may have or your kids have or your parents have. For some people, those trials are joblessness. For some people, those trials are, are coming to grips now with things you've done in your past, and, and you hate that those things in your past always come back to here, and you're working through that, and it's just so trying, trying to get away from who you were. For some people, those trials are dead-end jobs. It's waking up every morning and, and questioning everything and always being restless. For some people, those trials are feeling like they're not good enough. Right? I can't be a father. I can't be a husband. I can't be a wife. I can't be a mother. I can't be a pastor. I can't be name profession. I can't be whatever it may be. For some people, those various trials are poverty. 
They're struggling to make ends meet. They're having to decide, am I going to pay this bill or am I going to pay that bill? Am I going to eat or is my family going to eat? For some people, these trials are loneliness. Loneliness is happening. Loneliness is like an epidemic in our country today. We are more connected than ever sort of theoretically, but we are more profoundly lonely than ever. For some, those trials are anxiety and depression. For some, that anxiety looks like every time the phone rings, they think everything's falling apart. They can't approach normal situations in life because they're so riddled with this fear of what may happen. Some of it they may control, some of it they do not control. There are various trials. Some we cause, some we don't cause. Some others cause, some things just happen. Some morally bad, some morally neutral. But we're going through various seasons of difficulty in our lives. And every single one of those happens under the hand of God. Trials are varied in some way. They're they're temporary. And in some way that we must humbly confess are necessary. If you're taking notes, you may write down that faith is being forged in the crucible of our trials. Faith is being forged in the crucible of our trials. Those trials that are varied, that are temporary, and that are necessary... They're doing something. The scripture teaches that they are refining your faith. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What those trials are inflicting cannot compare to what those trials are building. What those trials are inflicting cannot compare to what those trials are building. We have bought the lie that our lives are supposed to get better and better and better and better when we become Christians, because that's the way it's marketed to us by leaders who want to profit off of us. But the testimony of Scripture is plain that a Christianity that suffers nothing is a Christianity that is worth nothing. These trials that we run from are preparing for us a faith, are creating in us a faith that will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think about that. This doesn't make your trials less painful today, but it definitely gives some context to them, if that makes sense. This language of praise, glory, and honor is very eschatological, and this language of praise, glory, and honor, I I would argue, is sort of uh, fixed in the psyche of of the Israelites. Uh, The prophet Daniel, when speaking of the Messiah, spoke of this praise, glory, and honor that would come, and then the disciples 
are asking Jesus, right? In Daniel's prophecy, it's like praise, glory, and honor will come like with the Son of Man. And the disciples of Jesus are hearing him refer to himself as the Son of Man. And so the disciples are getting really excited for that praise, glory, and honor. But what the disciples could not wrap their minds around was that that praise, glory, and honor would come on the other side of the crucifixion. Right? What they couldn't wrap their mind around was that God came as a suffering servant. That to embrace, to receive praise, glory, and honor, they had to embrace rejection, suffering, and pain. Right? These trials that we're walking through, the rejection, suffering, and pain that we're walking through are preparing for us a faith that at the end of all of this will result in praise, glory, and honor. It's better than anything else we can imagine. The text says, you have not seen him, verse 8, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You haven't seen him, but you love him. You haven't seen him, but you believe in him. You haven't seen him, but there is this real profound joy that is true in you because of this hope that we've laid forth. Because of what you will receive, you embrace all of this in the the path to get to that. You rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Like this joy that's like beyond words. As I ponder that hope that's laid up for us, as I ponder the fact that I will stand before God and He will not smite me, that I will stand before God and receive praise, glory, and honor as I give it back to Him, and I will receive the reward of a life well lived. As I fix my mind on that, I don't even have words. Like, I will see Jesus face to face. And not only will I see him as he is, I will be like him in a resurrected body. And all will be right. Like, I don't even have words to put in what that is like. It's just, you just, you just, you just, you just, you just can't get it out. It's like when you see these videos of people at Christmas time, right, who, you know, uh, let's just make up an imaginary scenario. Uh, this, the dad of this family is a massive Browns fan, and so he has been subjected to many various trials, if you will, and he's been uh, watching the Browns from his couch or his, his chair his whole life, and his son, you know, goes out and has a job now. And the son can finally buy something for his dad. And he buys his dad tickets to a Browns game. His dad might think they're expensive, but they're probably not, you know. He buys his dad tickets to a Browns game. And uh, he, he, he puts them in this envelope thing. And he, he hands them to him. And, and the dad is just overtaken by emotion, you know. They usually just kind of put the gift down and start crying. And, you know, everyone's like, what is it? What is it? You know, they're like, a brown stick, you know what I'm saying? And so this sort of moment where it's like you receive this gift and you just, you just move to, to tears. You just you can't put into words immediately how excited you are about what you've just gotten. Tears well up and all of a sudden it, I can't express in that moment how happy I am to receive 
that which I've received. This joy is inexpressible. It's beyond words. And even that silly little metaphor is insufficient. This joy is filled with glory. I can't even put it into words. And that joy is marked by glory. That joy is marked by the end result, which is glory. That joy I experience today is is an experience of that hope which I have for tomorrow. That joy which I have today is an experience of that hope which I have for tomorrow. Our lives today, even in various trials, are marked by our hope for tomorrow. The hope for tomorrow then leads to joy today because we're already anticipating and in some sense experiencing that hope beyond the horizon. We taste and see that God is good today and we don't even see him yet. We love him now and we can't even see him. We believe in him now and we can't even see him. Imagine what lies before us. The people that are the most earthly good are those who are the most heavenly minded. This joy isn't mere happiness. It's not a mere superficial emotion. But hear me, hear me. This joy is not less than happiness. (laughs) We bifurcate joy and happiness, rightly so. Because I can have unshakable joy in difficult seasons. And so there's sort of this overcorrection that I have to always be happy. And so to, make, to, to correct that, we say, you know, joy and happiness are different. And they are. That joy is fixed in our eternal circumstance. And that our happiness may fluctuate based on seasons, right? Jesus didn't walk around the earth always just elated and happy and bubbly. And that's not necessarily, it's not, period, the best way or God's way to live life. But joy is not always less than happiness. Like if I am not delighted in God, if I'm not happy in God ever, then I must ask, am I really joyful in Him? What is my heart's response when I'm looking at what's coming? Am am I happy about that? Does it move my mind at least towards happiness or not. God wants us to delight in him. God calls us to be joyful in him. God calls us to be happy in him. How do we cultivate that sort of joy? We look at what's coming and know that everything I'm experiencing here is in some way preparing me for that. That is where joy begins. Uh, Nate, if you want to come on up. Advent, in conclusion, is a time where tears of grief mingle with tears of joy. Is the hope that we spoke of this morning always set before you? Does the hope of tomorrow give meaning to today? Meaning, does what we know to be true ultimately, 
that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And we are being guarded through all of life to make sure that we get that which God is keeping for us. Does that hope actively give meaning to all of life? Or does that exist over here and then everything else is over here and there's no interplay between the two? As a Christian, am I blaming God for my trials or with right perspective am I thanking God for my trials? If my joy is insufficient, and I want you to answer honestly whether your joy is insufficient. I need to run some diagnostics on where my hope is. If my lived experience of joy is just not there, then we don't begin building it with just more self-esteem, with just happy thoughts, with just fixing our mind alone just a certain way. We begin to build the foundation for a life of lived joy by fixing our hope on that which cannot be moved. If my hope is not tethered to the right place, my joy will be insufficient. And is joy really a big deal? I would share the words that John Piper has made so famous. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. C.S. Lewis has famously said, joy is the serious business of heaven. The scriptures repeat the refrain that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That we are people that aren't unique from the world because we don't suffer. We do suffer. We're not unique from the world in that we don't understand pain. We understand pain like everyone else. We're unique from the world in that our pain is preparing in us something that is more valuable than comfort. Where is your hope this morning? Would you say it's in Jesus, but it's really in comfort? It's really in everything just kind of going the way you want it to go. I charge you, I exhort you, I plead with you to fix your eyes on the resurrected one. To fix your eyes on Jesus. To set your gaze toward kingdom come where our inheritance lies. And as we lift our gaze there, we embrace every moment of suffering. Not in superficial happiness, grin and bear it, but in a bone real joy that we are heirs of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'm going to pray for us. And after I do, I'll invite you to spend a couple of moments in reflection, asking yourself, what, what have I placed my hope on? And asking yourself, am I experiencing joy? Do I experience like happiness when I read my Bible? Do I read my Bible? 
Do I pray? Am I experiencing the life of God and the joy he brings? If not, let me remind you of who he is, what he's done, what he's doing for you, and how he's bringing all of this together in ways that we never would have dreamed. And fix your eyes on him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word that doesn't just fill us with truisms and these spiritual empty calories, if you will. But we're thankful for your word that gives us a sure and steady hope and a sure and steady joy. Father, in this season, we're striving to live with this active awareness that we are part of your unfolding story. And some days that's easy to think about, but some days it's hard. Remind my brothers and sisters this morning who are going through some real hard stuff that their trials are temporary. In your wisdom, not in ours, but in your wisdom, those trials are necessary. And those trials are doing something. They're doing something that wouldn't be done any other way. They're serving as the crucible of a faith that at the end of life will result in glory, in honor and praise. This morning, Lord, tether our hope to your kingdom and make us people marked by joy, with joy unspeakable, joy inexpressible, and joy that is filled with glory. And make this joy, Lord, our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strategy for reaching our city. May the world see our joy. May our friends and family see our joy, especially when we're going through trials, when there's no earthly reason to have joy. And may they hear the gospel from the lips of these brothers and sisters. This is why I have joy, even though it doesn't look like I should, because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loved me. He gave himself for me, and through his resurrection, I have an unfading hope. Fix our hope in you and fix our joy to you. In Christ's name we pray.